Find Out Why interviews Imran Ahmed, the founder of the Center of Countering Digital Hate. A London-based advocacy group that counters hate speech and individuals from spreading their narratives at major social media outlets. by asking Imran Ahmed to introduce the Center of Countering Digital Hate to our audience. The Center for Countering Digital Hate was set up to uh, look at the ways in which identity-based hate and misinformation is not only being spread, but it's being used by fringe political actors to, uh, in alliances to give them new audiences and a new capacity to reach parts of the public that they hadn't in the past. And we look at the constellation of beliefs that comprises the radical worldview, whether that's identity-based hate, it's science misinformation, climate denial, vaccine denial. We try and understand what are the common themes um, of faux populism, anti-expert sentiment and conspiracism and how can we counter their ability to use digital platforms to spread their their beliefs um, so I mean we are really a reaction to the fact that those forces worked out how to use digital spaces faster and more effectively than anyone else and certainly, by, certainly much faster than conventional pro-social forces. Um, and we are, in one respect, a reaction to them, in that they, wash, they, they push a counter-enlightenment set of ideals, um, intolerance instead of tolerance, um, opinion, misinformed opinion rather than scientific fact. And we are the counterforce for those enlightenment ideals of tolerance and and truth. So the fake news industry is it coordinated uh, by certain actors, or, or or it doesn't have structure? Like like any industry, there's multiple players who aren't necessarily coordinated, but mm-hmm. they exist because there's a market for it, and there are the tools available to allow them to to satisfy that that market and what they've done is they've they've colonized the spaces in which there is uncertainty or in which there are tensions between modernity and our basic psychological impulses so fear um greed um those basic emotional states they create myths and spread those myths in order to resolve people's tensions and to give them a satisfaction that they aren't getting from other solutions um but they do so with a very 
cynical end in mind. Um, and that, that there is there is certainly an industry there that there is an there is a strong economic impulse underlying um, a lot of the activity. In that, first of all, a, a large number of the players are in fact getting very wealthy off it. Whether that's the hate actors and misinformation agents themselves, or the social media companies, which are key allies to them. How social media companies are allies to them? How do they contribute? So, in their own internal, whether if, if it's just social media companies, their own internal assessments of the impact that they have on societies, that they increase divisiveness. Um, they do that because the underlying logic their algorithms are based on their business models. And their business models are simple. These are advertising. These are companies that, that provide space in which to advertise to people. And that game is about eyeballs and how many eyeballs you can get on your site. And so they seek to keep you on their site for as long as possible in order to, in order to um, serve up ads to you. And they do that by providing content that's engaging rather than anything else. Um, so they will they will promote division and controversy over fact. Um, they will promote misinformation, which is more exciting to, to engage with. Um, when someone says something that's wrong, they rely on the fact that a very strong human instinct is to correct them, to argue your values, to find it an assault upon you as a person and what you stand for. And so what they do is they they increase the amount of tension uh, and because that's what makes them, that's what keeps people on the site. They promote that. So no, no one sees a timeline anymore of the tweets that they, of the people they follow. They see an algorithmically constructed list of content that has the highest likelihood of keeping them scrolling down. And that algorithm is based on the logic. Well, how do we keep them scrolling down? Keep them, keep them excited and angry. And that will keep them looking down and scrolling further and give us more time to serve the ads. Is there a way that big decks can be held accountable? Well, I mean, holding them accountable, um, we've argued that advertisers have a special capacity and moral duty to do so, given that they benefit from those platforms and that they are their only customers. You and I, we are not the customers of Facebook or Google or Twitter. We are their product. We give them our data, we tell them our feelings, our thoughts, our sentiments, and that information is packaged up and sold as psychographic archetypes to advertisers who then target us based on whether or not those, what we have told them, marries up with their profile of who buys their products. And that's why advertisers you know, have access to an incredible pool but they have a particular capacity to change the way that that tool is created and the way that it, um, the content that's produced on, that's, that's promoted on there and what those spaces are like to interact on. And for too many people, those spaces are toxic. So it's up to advertisers. Do they want their brands to essentially um, be known for selling through doing business with these incredibly toxic spaces. Um, but anyone can advertise on platforms such as Facebook or Google, even the average user. 
should they also engage in advertising in big techs or they also have a responsibility? Well, I think, so ethical advertising is, is you know, it sort of, it initially, the first wave of that as an idea came from the corporate and social responsibility wave in the 90s and noughties, um, which um, it petered out because it was incapable of driving through from the logic of why it's a good thing to do to why it's good for business as well. And advertisers need to understand that they will increasingly be held responsible by consumers if they advertise on those platforms. And that there is a commercial, there is actually a brand advantage in advertising in an ethical way. So Facebook and Twitter don't care what you and I think because their business is not, you know, they are business to business um, operators, but business to consumer brands need to think much more carefully about whether or not they want to be associated with, with platforms like Facebook. And there will be greater transparency and awareness that those brands that do business on Facebook that, that, that fund these platforms are in fact funding the spread of hate and misinformation in our society. So our hope is that we create a revolution so that the business to consumer businesses understand that it's no longer an ethical thing to do, nor, and, and in fact, it's a brand damaging thing to do, to do business with these platforms. We are witnessing the move of high-profile politicians and government representatives to big tech companies. What does that mean for the future relationship between big techs and governments? Can one say that big techs can do politics now or should they be considered as political actors at all? They're private companies that operate for the extraction of wealth. And there have been big corporations which have massive consequences on the rest of society that we as society have regulated before. This is not a difficult thing to do. Think of financial services. Think of big energy. We, we managed to, to um, so big energy, you think about the Rockefeller empire, you think about you know, the, the massive Shell, which is a Dutch Anglo company. Um, you think about um, Chevron, et cetera, et cetera. We managed to regulate them so that the negative externalities of, of their industry climate change in particular, but also the destabilization of our geopolitics was managed. And we did the same with the financial services industry with the, um, you know, both after the Great Depression and then after the dot-com crisis. Like there are industries comprising actors which are absolutely enormous. And we get very excited about saying things like they have this, you know, they are, that their stock, that their, um, their total value is the same as the GDP of a country. Well, it's kind of not a fair, it's not, it's not a sensible comparison. I mean, that's the, what the total wealth held in their equity versus the, the annual product created. I mean, it's not, it's comparing to, just because they're numbers doesn't mean they're comparable numbers or that it's sensible to compare them. These are, these are players within our economy. Our economy is part of our society. Our society is run by government. 
we have the right and the ability to constrain them. That's, that's just the way regulation works. And society has the right to shape economic productivity towards goals that are, that are, that are good for our society and generating wealth and generating ideas and, and technical capacity and jobs is amazing. It's really important. At the same time, when without regulation, there is no incentive to, to, to stop the negative effects, they won't change. So just create those incentives. And look, here's the most important, for me, the most important piece of research that we did recently was the polling around coronavirus vaccines. When we asked the public in the UK and the US what they wanted to happen to social media companies that failed to take down misinformation about vaccines, a majority of people in every demographic, in every psychographic, of every political leaning, in both the US, which has got the First Amendment and Section 230, and the UK, in both countries, a majority said yes to boycotts by other companies, yes to fines by the state, and yes to, we were surprised by this, criminal charges against executives who failed to, who failed to uh, exert a statutory duty of care. The public have already come to a conclusion. The public are much more capable of balancing, you know, these, these, these important fundamental rights of harm minimization and freedom of speech. And they say, well, the freedom of speech is not the freedom of reach. People should not have the right to pump their misinformation into millions of households if that causes immense harm. And coronavirus has really focused minds because if you don't constrain that misinformation, lots and lots and lots of people will die and our societies will never recover. So we have an, a question to be answered now do we want to let Facebook decide that we never go back to normal? Because that's what's happening right now. How the average social media user can protect themselves from sophisticated disinformation campaigns? Look, there's a strong correlation between getting your news from social media and being, and being, and being vaccine hesitant, for example. Social media is not a good place to find information. Um, we, you know, that, that, that there, are, there are tools that we can use as well to try and block those people who, who want to spread misinformation to us. So there are organized people who are trying to spread misinformation. And often there are willing dupes who are amplifying that misinformation. Their information is designed to be engaging. So why expose yourself to people who are essentially trying to play you? I mean, we've seen, we've actually found far-right neo-Nazi playbooks in which they explain how they operate, which is that they say something controversial, wait for other people to engage, and that then amplifies their narrative into millions of timelines. It's, it's really simple, and we keep falling for it day after day after day. The best thing that we can do is ignore stuff on, on social media that, 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 that is um, not from a credible authority, to block people that are persistently spreading it, um, or spreading known misinformation, and then take a time out because actually social media can really, really mess with your head. Having something come from someone that you know um, that is wrong can really, re and it, it triggers impulses in us. We are human beings. We want to be liked. We don't want to upset people. We don't want to disagree with someone we love and care about. It's really difficult to argue with a relative, for example, who is misinformed because you don't really want to get into it. So don't expose yourself to it. It's really unhealthy for you, for them, and for society. What about deplatforming? Deplatforming works. 
It's just that simple. If you reduce their audience, they're incapable of spreading it to as many people. And this idea that their audiences go and follow them to another place, it just isn't empirically true. It is not true at all. That has been shown in counter-terrorism studies of how Al-Shabaab and ISIS, when they were deplatformed, had to spend huge amounts of effort reconstituting their networks and never could without the algorithmic amplification of YouTube and Twitter and everyone else. Um, and it's, it's something that we study in detail. So we watch the people that we have deplatformed and we see what's happened to them. And they, they, are, they, are, they are rendered tiny nubs um, after, after deplatforming. Why? Because no one's really interested in what they have to say if they haven't got an algorithm literally giving them the advantage. That's the thing. There never was a level playing field. That whole idea of free speech was a lie on these platforms. The other side is given an amplification because they produce content which is deliberately designed to get us engaging with it. And if, if the NHS says, don't, you know, please wear a mask, no one goes and writes back to them saying, oh yeah, thanks so much NHS, or, um, or retweets it or, or likes it because it's just, it's the NHS. Who, you know, of course they're going to say that. If someone says something like, don't wear a mask, a thousand people will descend and say, no, that's rubbish. And what you do then is you give the advantage in the algorithm to misinformation over good information. It's just that simple. What is the role of traditional media in digital platforms? Can one claim that they are gatekeepers of information? I, th I think the traditional media is changing and it's mm -hmm. right that it does change. But the traditional media was never just about the gatekeepers who decide who goes on, who doesn't. It was also more fundamentally about a value set. Like the, the revolution in journalism, journalistic ethics. And when the printing press started, when the first newspapers came out, they were just as bad as the social media platforms are now. You think of the yellow press, you think of the, the yellow press based themselves on salacious gossip um, of, on outright lies in which they tried to shape the media and they tried to shape the information environment. And that had to be revolutionized through a whole of society approach, new economies, new laws, which made it more difficult for them to lie about people, an ethical change within the companies themselves, and an understanding in society that there were different qualities of news, that there were quality news providers and bad news providers. And that will take time, but that will happen. But the social media companies, what they have created now, even their own internal pressures, and we should, we should be very clear that people that work for these companies now are working for unethical companies. They might have great cafes internally, and they might have great spaces in which to hang out. And I've been to their offices, and they're gorgeous. But they work for unethical companies. And those companies that profit from hate and misinformation, they will eventually fall by the wayside because I do believe that there are enough, that most of us are good people. And eventually that business model based on sin will end. Organizations, civil society, politics and individuals, we all share the same responsibility? It's, it's going to require a whole of society response. But our society our societies have risen to those challenges before 
these are not insuperable, nor are they entirely novel. They are challenges nonetheless. And when there is a challenge, we need to stand up to it. But I think that we're starting to see that, which is exciting. And, you know, we are only 10 years into this revolution, this digital revolution. If we think now that these social mores and values and changes that are happening in our society are, are you know, seem, seem huge, they are only a few years worth of work. And to, to reshape it to a place in which we can make it a healthier economy around digital communication space, it will take time. But it will not be. It's not something that cannot be cannot be uh, cannot be conquered. Um, and regardless, I and mean, the next technological revolution will happen. And so, this the challenges of this technological revolution. We need to get it right now because there are bigger and bigger changes happening, which will present even greater problems for us. What is the campaign that you're currently working on? So the two things that are most important for us right now are. Our Stop Hate for Profit campaign, which we're which we are part of the coalition of groups alongside the Color of Change, the ADL, Common Sense Media, uh, and Sleeping Giants, which is trying to persuade uh, advertisers not to advertise on social media companies that aren't taking action against hate and misinformation. And the second is our Stop Funding Fake News, which is about persuading advertisers not to let their adverts appear as a result of Google's ad network on fake news sites that push hate and misinformation and pretend to be real news sites. And that's one of our most important campaigns and one of our most successful. This was Imran Ahmed. And I'm Elena Giola for Find Out Why.